Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your practice. I hope this finds you in good health, secure. Scholarship. What do we mean when we say that? If you haven't watched the previous video, um, I'm just reading through the forward that I wrote for my current uh, retranslation and annotation of the Lotus Sutra via Nichiren scholarship and our modern practice, um, trying to get rid of all the uh, biases, the cultural biases, religious biases that tend to seem to be attached to every single uh, translation I've read, no matter how scholarly or academic. Um, it's upsetting to me because those little errors, they accumulate and they create a lot of confusion in what should be a very straightforward practice. So that's my mission with this school, Threefold Lotus Quoon. That's what our Sangha is relying on for clear, direct practice. And Nichiren is our mentor in that. Nichiren is our exemplar in that. I mean, he spent his whole life doing this, trying to get the muck out of the way so we would just practice exactly as Shakyamuni was pointing for us to do, to discover for ourselves. Self-realization, yes? All right, so we're halfway through. Scholarship from Ananda to Nichiren and all the scholar monks in between, right? Miaolo, Tendai, Saicho, Nagarjuna, Vasubandhu, so on and so forth. Nichiren's writings offer a later day, latter day, a mapo, elucidation of the full breadth of Sakyamuni, Shakyamuni's Buddha's intent and the proper attitude for correct and effective practice. This is Nichiren. This practice, quote-unquote, being designed to awaken the mind from its cravings and clinging to a living experience happening in immersion of the process of life itself, rather than creating warehouses of impermanent and false reality. I mean, in as few words as I could say it, that's Buddhism and certainly Nichiren's bent on making sure we understand that it's not some flowery, magical, mystical, mystery tour. That Buddhism is very pragmatic, very down-to-earth, very let's get this life at its maxim. Hmm? I've already covered some of that. This practice being designed to awaken the mind from its cravings and clingings, so on and so forth, Nichiren has provided us with modern tools created directly from the pages of the Lotus teaching of the wonderful Dharma. His writings still contain exigencies for the capacity of the people of medieval Japan, and yet remain cogent to our 21st century issues and distractions. Don't you find that? When you uh, follow along in the, in the uh, playlist that I have for Nichiren Gosho, don't you find a lot of the issues that he's talking to his uh, constituents about resonate? I mean, we're not samurai, but in a way, we're not that far, right? And the issues, the politics, the personal issues, women's issues, he hits them head on, and it's very straightforward stuff. And 
we haven't changed much since then. So they're very contemporary takes on our our experience of life and certainly our practice of Buddhism. Yeah. So um, Nichiren locates his life and work in relation to Shakyamuni's foretelling of this age or era within which is a human capacity to inherently manifest this awakened mind directly and quickly by invocation of the Lotus Method or teaching. Nichiren's brilliance was his understanding of the physical and study tools necessary for our modern minds to quickly focus and connect with our mind's portal to the Buddha experience, or I, the Buddha I. My goal in this revised and annotated translation of the Lotus Sutra is a simple evolution for our time and vernacular to make more clear, abundantly clear, the synthesis of Nichiren's insights and elucidations in the teaching of the Lotus for our comprehensive and efficient understanding and practice of his doctrine, and Shakyamuni's intent for the enlightenment of all living beings. And with that, I go to the next section. Buddhism is about the mind. I'm constantly reminding you, I know you've heard me say that ad nauseum. And I pull out a quote here, and it'll make sense later. William Blake wrote about the doors of perception. And since Siddhartha Gautama endeavored to solve the problem of human suffering, the mechanisms of experience through the mind have been the ground on which to solve the puzzle of perception and live a fully expressed life. Now, if you know anything about William Blake or the Doors of Perception, you can look it up on the internet. I'm sure there's all kinds of little blurbs about it. You don't understand. It's about cognition, our mind, how we perceive experience, right? And is that not Buddhism? And it's certainly the same area of investigation, right? In the early days of Buddhist practice, much as in other disciplines for spiritual or mental experience growth, the ascetism, practices of privations in order to more fully understand the vices and obstacles of our desires, have been used with different motivations and yet with the ultimate goal of clarity of the mind-to-body connection to find some insight into the nature of our perception and experience of life. I mean, this is how the martial arts evolved in any culture, right? There, certainly, in, there's a lot that's been written about Kung Fu and the Chinese uh, Wushu or uh, whatever title you want to give it, starting with a Buddhist, Bodhidharma, right? Who was find, trying to find a way to uh, increase the, the health of the monks that he had encountered, uh, so that they could increase their physical health in order to be able to even focus their minds properly. They were weak. They were getting raided all the time by marauders, taking their rice stores and all of that. And he thought, well, if these guys have any hope of being, uh, elevating their minds and reaching to higher consciousnesses, they've got to have a body, an apparatus that keeps that mind healthy, Right? 
So he taught the, the great sinew and tendon exercises to help uh, condition their bodies. And, you know, a long history of uh, Chinese martial arts moves from that to Tai Chi Chuan and the, the Bhagwan, uh, all sorts of things. And there's always, to this day, this kind of a, a philosophical wrestling match, if you will, between the schools of thought that say once you develop your body and you can see what your capacities and limitations are with physically, your mind then grows to understand life as a larger concept, right? If only uh, that you will learn the incredible fragility of human physical life and uh, thusly discover how uh, controlling your temper or your reaction to something uh, is vital because you will develop a compassion for the person who may be your, uh, your perceived foe, your enemy, as somebody whose life you could take away. It's such a brief moment that your, your whole desire, as it were, to inflict pain on this person is not only diminished, but becomes a revulsion. I don't even want to feel that. Let's not do that, right? So it's a rather Buddhist kind of way to think in a very violent practice, yes? So that's putting the body before the mind. Then there's the philosophy that says, if you can cultivate your mind, use these exercises to create a strong body to support the evolution of your mind, you will come to that same place and you will have a healthy body but the mind first will allow you to see the potential you have in your violent expression of energies and you will diminish the desire to do so so the two work hand in hand which is primary which is secondary eh. yeah as buddhists we're just concerned with health altogether, with all life and human beings, yeah? Remember all the, pro the prohibitions of early Buddhists about what they eat, what, what vegetables, what smelly this and smelly that. There were a lot of cultural realities to that. But all of it was about cultivating a body that was supportive of a developing, growing enlightenment of the mind. Or was it the enlightenment of the mind would then condu be conducive to better conduct for promotion of health? You could go on and on about this, right? Okay, excuse me. To find some insight into the nature of perception of the experience of life. Buddhist efforts, though, were not to discover some higher external force or logic at work within or upon the human body or mind. Rather, it was the mind's ability to construct reality anew with deeper insights. And that was the uh, training of ascetics. Schools of various insights spawned from the early teachings of Shakyamuni to very desperate, uh, disparate aims and misunderstandings from nihilist systems of thought 
to mind-only schools, theorizing that all of reality was no more than a conjuring of the mind, missing the critical point that it is our warehousing of these realities that's the problem. And not that the things exist as a moment-to-moment reality, not to be held or possessed. A lot of people still make that mistake. In order to attain enlightenment, do I need to, you know, like Medicine King, get rid of the body? No, no, no. The body's not the problem. It's the implied importance of the identification of the body as the self that needs to be gotten rid of. Right? As we've as I've already mentioned, the body is incredibly important because it allows us to manifest this amazing mind, this perceptive screen, right? This theater of life watching it. But warehousing all those snapshots, that's ridiculous. That's hoarding. That's not living. Right? Simple as that. In India, a place of ancient societies, had they had many various and priori cultural norms to unravel. And Shakyamuni was revolutionizing myths, beliefs, traditions, and even language. This turmoil was a bane was the bane of the higher castes of Brahmins and politicians, as well as society in general, because they were used to having that caste system, right? And you're one of those and you'll never be anything else than one of those. Don't go telling those people that they have potential beyond the way they were born into a caste. It makes no sense. What? Don't tell them that. That's the way we control them, right? It was upsetting. Much of these teachings empowered lower castes beyond anything previously considered or accepted. The central question Buddhism set out was to do with the vast differences of perception endemic to the human experience. No two persons experience the, quote, same thing in exactly the same way. Remember the, uh, the, the fountain analogy in the, in the back of uh, uh, the first volume of um, Buddhism Reference. Yeah? That perception equals experience seems simple enough. But how is perception related to the actual authentic object of perception? Could it be that the perception is the fabrication of the individual human mind with little, if anything, to do with the authentic object of its perception? Hmm. And if so, what does this say of the, quote, reality of the, quote, object? Right? Buddhism tackles all of that. It tells you that nothing exists in and of itself. It's a moment-to-moment instantiation constantly changing through, quote, time. And that reality, we turn into a linear continuum of being as though being becomes a noun. And we've missed it. We've missed the very glorious thing that is the verb of being. That it's being moment to moment to moment to moment to moment like a little engine going right sounds like a hum but it's not a hum it's one little dot of sound one after another and each of those dots is its own 
moment of being and it's gone into the next. It sounds simple, but we don't normally think this way. And because we don't normally think this way, we attach ourselves to things as though they ought to be there continuously. And they are not. Not that physically they're not, but that mentally they are not. We're making a mistake. We're counting on things that are no longer there. Suffering, craving, clinging. That's what that's about. Now, it may sound silly to talk about a chair or a guitar that way, but when you start thinking about relationships that way, it opens up a whole field hmm, of how you take things for granted, how you expect things unreasonably. Hmm? Two tracks of investigations come from this research, the pursuit of a clear understanding of the objects of discriminations, and conversely, the mind's strata of identification and data accrual that warehouse. The pursuit of the true nature of objects leads to the insights of impermanence and constant change, and even to the amazing insights of fluctuation of energy and impermanence through rigorous examination akin to that of the modern sciences and ultimately down to the structures of atoms and energy itself. Hmm? Quantum fluctuations. Look that one up. You want to spend an afternoon twisting your melon. As for the mind, it becomes stratified in compartments of consciousnesses to understand the nature of sensations and the sense organs of the capture or the, quote, input of discriminations identified, categorized, and qualified by, quote, perception in the mind of an individual. And that brings us to stratification of the mind. Well, of course it does, Sifu. <laughs> now, this is, um, again, this is a forward trying to create a context for reading the Lotus Sutra. Certainly, from Nichiren, in our point of view as modern practicing Buddhists. So, the stratifications of the mind becomes not something that you have to understand deeply or know, but... Just knowing about it, just having it, again, as the wallpaper in our room of context. It's, it's interesting to witness the degree, the minutia to which the scholars of Buddhism, like Nagarjuna, dove into the very nitty-gritty of argumentation in order to experientially prove, logistically prove, with the mind itself, how the mind itself functions. No guesswork here. Just really interrogate, analyze with rigor. Don't let anything slip. And if you can show how this interpretation is wrong, then let's look into it. All roads should lead to the same experience, perception. Yes? That's science. So, first among the consciousnesses to evaluate are the most prominent in our mind's mechanisms of discrimination and identification. Makes sense, right? 
These are the sense organs, right? Sight, sound, taste, smell. Oh, I have sound in there again. And the mind itself. Hmm, how did I do that? Sight, sound, taste, smell. That should be, is that voice? No, that's sound. Oral. So you have sight, eye, consciousness, ear consciousness, mouth consciousness. Smell. Oh, touch. Where's, oh, dummy. So found my first error. Need to fix that. So that should be touch. How do I mark this up? Okay, well, I'm glad we found that, so i got to remember that. All right, so these are the skandhas, right? The first five aggregates. Vasubandha really dove into that. Each of these consciousnesses are responsible for what? Specific, how do I get out of this now? <laughs> okay, so... Um, each of these consciousnesses are responsible for specific aspects of data gathering and collation, right? There's a rock. That color, the rock is this color or that color. It's probably got these metals in it, that, right? The, the, all of the teachings we've learned about the ten factors, right? That whole thing, the, the color, the, the cause, the latent effect, the size, the weight, all of these things, hmm? Um, eye consciousness gathers data on color, size, appearance, movement, etc. This is developed in tandem with the necessary, necessary characteristics of the objects of perceptions as we find defined in Buddhist teachings in the Ten Factors of all phenomena enumerated in the second chapter of the Lotus Teaching. Appearance, nature, entity, power, influence, internal cause, relation, latent effect, manifest effect, and consistency from beginning to end. We chant that every day when we do Gangyo. Now, in the in the forward, I give you the full explanation, as in internal cause, nyoze in. N, it's spelled I-N, but it's pronounced N as an E. An inherent or direct cause that produces a latent effect at some future point. So there's a little description of each one of those. And then um, I get into uh, the breakdown here. Uh, the initial five consciousnesses are interfaces with the phenomenal world, right? fully flushed out in Vasubandhu's scholarship as the five aggregates, or skandhas, that aggregate uh, discriminated data sets for our warehouse of data. But something more is needed to complete our perceptions and impressions of the phenomenal world. So the sixth consciousness is the collator, the gatherer, the sorter. Put these over there, put these over there. This is this, this is not that, blah, blah, blah of the contemporaneous activity of assimilating all this data, gathering into cohesive types and nuances, closely allied with and inter interrelated with the seventh consciousness of the warehouse itself, quote-unquote, maintaining a structure of epistemology and applied impressions in the formations of opinions and adjudications with these doors of perception, quote-unquote, ah, came back, now open 
It is the perception itself that comes under scrutiny, right? So this is our samsaric world, these seven consciousnesses. And they make their assumptions based on a freight train of energies that constitutes our context, Bob's context, Sylvain's context, Shamalika's concept, uh, context, right? Noon Lee's concept, that that freight train of karma has its huge bundle, amalgam of tendencies and conditions. And within that contextual lens of perception, certain assumptions are made. That's the epistemology we have. And those progenitors of those tendencies and conditions are held with the eighth consciousness, is a marriage of the ten factors of all phenomena with the amalgam of the consciousnesses of the human experience or samsara. This is a very complex consciousness that integrates the whole of the physical cosmos with the sentience of the individual human mind. There is a unity here that belies the entire concept of Buddhist, quote, reality, as it is experienced as either the accumulate of all data warehoused in the individual, samsara, your samsara, my samsara, her samsara, or the universal engagement without warehousing of the instantaneous moment-to-moment, -moment, quote, reality of the momentum of the cosmos and all phenomena it contains and influenced by momentum through its environment. As indicated earlier, all objects are fundamentally impermanent. Instantiations of constantly changing potential, creating inertia. Humans, animals, plants, trees, stars, galaxies are also like this. All phenomena are simply various expressions of amalgams of energy as formations in the realm of form. From potential, quiescent energy, through formations, manifesting tendencies and conditions, this inertia provides an endless variety of forms to arise. Understanding a chart of the fundamental elements in the average chemistry classroom will reveal the basic building blocks of every known amalgam of molecules yet created and possibilities of new additions. Formations into fundamental elements and forces come to render molecules come to render complex structures of gases, liquids and solids, plants, trees, and ultimately, you and me. The vast amalgam that culminates in a human form from this engine of life is karma. And because all life, quote-unquote, is dynamic, non-static, and constantly moving, this karma is malleable. Karma is malleable via influence, from its own tendencies and conditions, but to the amazing construct of the eighth consciousness, it is additionally influenced by the input of the samsaric consciousnesses, consciousnesses imposed cravings and clinging. That is to say that our human perceptions, epistemology, and the actions in taught, thought or speech and body all impress upon our amalgam of karma and thereby affect our trajectory in life from moment to moment, 
requiring our vigilance in being mindful of our attitudes and intent. But this trajectory is bound by the warehouse of samsara. This samsara warehouse of human identification, built of possessions and discriminations and a constant craving for more, as well as a cellular clinging to all items in the accrued warehouse, constantly impose their weight onto our attitude and intent and, in short, our experience. So now we come to uh, the penultimate uh, section of the forward, Buddhahood and stuff. Seed of Buddhahood, Buddha mind, Buddha nature, and more. The variety and breadth of meanings of these often used terms shifting through the history of Buddhist texts can be another source of confusion. Nichiren settles these terminologies within his doctrine of practice. For Nichiren, the, quote, seed of Buddhahood is the Daimoku of the Lotus Sutra, Namo Myoho Renge Kyo. With the titular Lotus Blossom, Renge, the Daimoku includes the, uh, the instantaneous, quote, blossom of Buddha as the seeds are planted. But how does this marry with the consciousnesses and the ten factors of all phenomena? Again, I refer you to Buddhism reference for an in-depth in study on the nine consciousnesses. A brief summation takes us to the ninth consciousness. Nichiren invokes the ninth consciousness as the sentient mind's innate, inherent capacity for Buddha awareness. Nichiren didn't invent it. He's just pointing out that Shakyamuni's been talking about this all along. You need to understand, Nichiren didn't invent Buddhism. We don't practice Nichiren's Buddhism. We practice Nichiren's doctrine of Shakyamuni's teachings, uh, his ultimate teaching in the Lotus Sutra. Mm. With this feature of the sentient mind awakened, all eight consciousnesses, samsara, are subsumed and surrounded by the moment-to-moment -moment engagement of the engine of life. As this occurs, the warehouse mind itself of samsara is subdued and rendered irrelevant as overtaken by a true experience of clarity in the movement and process of life fully immersed into the inertia of life as it occurs. It's like you can see this huge warehouse out in the forest on the, on the top of a hill where we bank our identity on when we break open our Buddha mind. That whole warehouse just granulates and puffs into the air like a huge cloud of just so much of the same stuff that it's in. Oh, it's not special. It's not unique. It's everything is special and unique moment to moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. Isn't this glorious? Don't have to worry about losing it or getting it. We're in it. We are it. Holy my. Mind-blowing stuff, yeah. By chanting, sowing the seed of Buddhahood, or Buddha consciousness, in other words, little moments of awakening, invoking Buddha, 
the Daimoku, one immediately instantiates the Buddha capacity of the sentient mind. This experience of the engine of life is often named in different ways as the Buddha mind or Buddha-ness. The idea of the term Buddha nature is simply the term for this potential rather than the experience itself. Right? You can talk about a vegetable garden as the location you grow your vegetables in, but when you eat that cucumber, you are experiencing the vegetable garden. So Buddha nature, everywhere, all the time, moment to moment, sentient mind capacity for experiencing it, the experiencing it is not the Buddha nature, it's the Buddha-ness. It's the Buddha mind, the Buddha eye. How many words can we attach to this? But the experience is different than defining its potential. Mm, here we go again. Potential, formation, instantiation. Potential, Buddha nature, daimoku, formation, Buddha-ness, instantiation. Mm? The idea term Buddha nature blah blah blah, blah 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 by collecting repeated invocations of this eye-opening seed and experience, one is retaining the mind into the influence of Buddha clarity and slowly replacing the mythologies and false realities accrued in the samsaric warehouse influence. And now the final short chapter because this logically leads into it, the Bodhisattva of the Lotus Sutra. And I identify this as a shift in Bodhisattva teaching. If only for the reason that the Lotus Sutra is focused on the reality, the, the end goal, the, 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 the initial goal of Siddhartha, to live this life fully, that Buddhahood is instantiating, instantiatable now, immediately. As Nietzsche would say, by chanting the Daimoku. A few words here on one of the controversies in Buddhist scholarship. I don't know why it's a controversy, but people can make a controversy out of anything, right? We read of the three vehicles of Sravaka, Prachakabuddha, and Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva of the Tripitaka canon of teachings, those adhered to by the early Hinayana or Gama or Theravada, Tibetan sects, all maintain this false teaching or counterfeit or semblance teaching of the false Nirvana prior to the Lotus Sutra. As the Lotus Sutra specifically requires much more effort and aspiration to awaken the Buddha mind in our present form and life. For the earlier text, this present Buddhahood is simply not possible or within reach, requiring a multitude of lifetimes and ages to encounter and to be bequeathed only by an extant Buddha. It, 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 it's ridiculous. But this is the level of people's understanding. I think human beings, they just love to be relieved of responsibility. They'll work hard towards something, but ultimately, if someone else grants it to them, 
then they don't have to feel like it's on them to achieve it. It's, it's a strange dichotomous mind. Be that as it may. With the Lotus Sutra, these misunderstandings of earlier schools and monks are obliterated, unless they don't choose to see it. So too are the three vehicles annihilated, right? There are no, um, who is it talking? Subuti. There are not, or was it, I'm uh, sorry, it was uh, Shariputra. There are not three, there are not two. There is only one great vehicle to Buddhahood. This Myoho Renge Kyo. There are not three, much less two. There is only one. So the Bodhisattva of the Lotus Sutra could be interpreted as an entirely new Bodhisattva teaching a fourth vehicle, if you will. This fourth vehicle is the is subsumed in the one Buddha vehicle Dharma teaching. Is that technically what it's called? Nobody calls it that. As some might just in their argumentation of, you know, this is a different school. I would say it's an extension of what Bodhisattva has meant all along because I don't see uh, Shakyamuni's earlier teachings as being either wrong or teachings of a completely different source sort than the ultimate teachings of the Lotus Sutra and the Nirvana Sutra. I see all of his teachings trying to say the same thing, but to a different audience and trying to move them along and the stubbornness of the audience getting in the way of them getting past these cultural norms that they hold so precious. This is why he had to create the conjured city, right? All right, let me give them the goal of at least... I'll explain Nirvana as a letting go of all these attachments, and maybe by the time they get there, they'll get it. But they didn't. They became arrogant. Right? The Arhats who get up in the middle of the beginning of the Lotus Sutra and go, we don't need to learn anymore, and they're gone. And um, Shakyamuni didn't treat them with a lot of uh, respect. Right? In H. Kern's translation, he said, well, now that the trash is gone, right? In many ways, he was not impressed. And he didn't say a word. You want to leave? Right? So. Is this of critical importance to the achievement of our practice of Nietzsche's doctrine? I think it is interesting but more academic in its study than an actual affect to the teachings of Shakyamuni and further on through the linear or the lineage, I'm sorry, of scholar monks leading to Bodhisattva Nichiren. For more on this, a reading of the conjured city or the apparitional city parable in the seventh chapter of the Lotus Sutra is very clear on the temporary target used by early students of Shakyamuni to hold their commitment to study and practice. That's all that was. With the ultimate Mahayana of the Lotus, this temporary respite is removed to cause the students, monks, to aspire to the full goal of the Buddhist teachings for immediate and complete enlightenment in this lifetime. Now, that's the end of the forward. 
Uh, I think my goal in the forward was to create a context for the next chapter, which is the Sutra of Innumerable Meanings, Chapter 1. And I've included the innumerable meanings and the meditations on the universal virtue at the end as the opening or the prologue and the epilogue of the 28 chapters of the Lotus Sutra. So the whole thing is in here, right? This is the threefold Lotus Sutra. And um, yeah, it's a, it, after the first paragraph in here, I have my own paragraph italicized and in parentheses to indicate that this is my annotation. I think it'd be pretty obvious once you start reading it. Um, and I, I threw out all of the book here. So uh, there'll be, the, to be certain, there will be plenty of uh, areas where I shut up and let you go ahead and read what's there with text that I've already done as uh, my diligence in removing cultural and religious uh, triggers, trigger words, improper words don't belong in there, and replacing them with more clear terminologies that uphold the meaning of what Shakyamuni, or the translation should should refer to as Shakyamuni's teaching, yeah? Where it made sense, I introduced Nietzsche's thinking, because after all, that's what we are practicing, even though I'm infusing uh, 13th century Bodhisattva scholar thinking in a 2700 century old text, pretty much, yeah. Um, but you know, since we're we're all over the map on these uh, uh, when this was written and what language and translated by whom and so on and so forth, I don't think, especially since Shakyamuni uses the device of time as an obliterated kind of get that time issue out of your head thing. I don't have any problems sticking Nietzsche in the middle of it. It makes it much more, to my thinking, relatable to our current practice. So I'll be curious to see how you guys receive this. Uh, I hope it's all about making this, this is such an important teaching, to make it more relatable, clearly relatable to our lives today and how we practice. And um, so I'm looking forward to what I was going to say. There are sections where I have a lot to say. Usually after the chapter is done, I'm, I'm trying not to interrupt the flow <laughs> of the reading, although sometimes it's just opportunity and, and it makes sense. Um, what was that word I need to... Oh, yeah. Anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you for your practice. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Uh, there are links in the description below so you can get to uh, the website to find these these books and this reference material. Lots of free reference material as well. And, uh, well, you know what to do. Thank you for all of your help. You buy books, it really helps uh, my efforts here and grow these efforts. Patrons, you are, again, I'll say it again, Bodhisattva Universally Worthy is in your wheelhouse. You are emulating that Bodhisattva. So, with great appreciation to all of you, take care of your health. Enjoy your practice, and I'll see you in the next one. Okay? Bye for now. <laughs>